Good morning, my name is Carmen. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 22, verses 3 to 8. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son, he said. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is David. The New Testament reading is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 35. <clears throat> so what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more, who was raised and who also is at God's right hand. It is Christ Jesus who pleads our case for us. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble, or distress, or harassment, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Roy. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 27. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. 
So, Father, we ask you to come by your Holy Spirit and to open our eyes so that we would see Jesus today. Adjust the vision, adjust the eyes of our heart, that we would see clearly who you are. And then give us the grace that we could respond to you with whole hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. What is God like? If someone were to say to you, I don't believe in God, very often the best response you could have is to say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. It may be that I don't believe in Him either. And so it's important for us to ask ourselves this morning, what is God like? What is He actually like? Uh, is He the kind of God that is this tyrant up in the cosmos somewhere, this tyrant that says, you need to do this, or you need to do this, or you need to do this? Or is He a killjoy that says, ah, uh -uh, you can't have that? Nope, no sweets for you, no candy for you, and that's just Lent. What is God like? Or is God the doting grandfather that says, oh, whatever you want, I am there for you? Is God like the sort of genie in the tales of Arabian Nights where you, you, God appears only to make your wishes come true if only you would follow the, these three keys to a blessed life? What is God like? I think every time we open the pages of Scripture, that question should be at least in the back of our mind, if not in the foreground, to say, God, how do these stories show us something about who you are? I had a professor in my undergrad who, who taught this class called hermeneutics, which is the science of interpreting the Bible, and he said, every time you read the Bible, you're asking yourself, how, how, this, is, this, is, this is written for us to know, to know God and to know what it means to be His people. So every time we read Scripture, we're wanting to know, okay, God, what are you like, and what does it look like to be your people? We're, we're, we're in week 11 here of this series on uh, the life of Abraham through the book of Genesis, and we've been traveling along the story that began with the speaking God, the same God that spoke the cosmos into existence, is the God that calls to Abraham and gives him a promise that will somehow break through a barrenness and break through all of these human obstacles. And so far we've seen lots of places where the story or the promise was particularly precarious. How's that for alliteration? <laughs> Moments when, as it were, the journey took them all the way to the precipice and you thought, uh-oh, this is it. It's all going to, the train is going to go off the tracks. It's all going to derail. So much for God's plan to put it all back together again. And we've seen Sarah almost derailing the plan when she gives Abraham Hagar. And we've seen Abraham nearly derailing the plan right away in chapter 12. And then later again when he gives Sarah to a foreign king. And now that Isaac is here, it seems like we could maybe breathe a sigh of relief and to say, okay, okay, good. That part in the movie where we're kind of gripping, the, we're not there anymore, right? Like it should be all downhill from here. Except that we get to Genesis 22 where it almost seems like God himself is going to derail the plan. It almost seems like God himself is going to be the one that jeopardizes his own promise. And that's why this story touches a nerve. Because depending on your background or if you've had any familiarity with church or not, even if you've not just had sort of marginal interaction with Christianity, you've probably heard the story of Abraham and Isaac. And it might represent for you the very worst things that you think about God. 
you might right away hear this story and think, oh, this is why I could never do religion because I don't need some made-up God that is going to take away everything good in my life. And maybe, you, maybe on the other hand, you're, you're a person who's been in church for a long time, but you were given the kind of view of God that said everything that happens happens because God scripted it to happen. And so there's sort of this hardened or extreme view of sovereignty which has come to mean, well, God, God wills for that. God shows for that. And you're left with saying, okay, well, then I guess I just have to have a, keep a stiff upper lip and just keep going to church. Who am I to question God? And this story of Abraham and Isaac touches all of those nerves because we want to know, is this what God is really like? The story opens with a test. Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. The Hebrew phrasing of here is deliberately a cadence that builds. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. It's a, it's, a, it's a technique in the Hebrew to bring it to the point of emphasis, to bring it closer to home, to say, your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. Now, we can't gloss over these verses. We can't just read it and be like, okay, and so the spiritual point is, because right away we have to say, what is going on here? This seems vulgar and offensive. This seems pagan and primitive. And actually, you're right. It is pagan. And it is primitive. There was an ancient god named Molech who required child sacrifice. The Jewish rabbinic tradition is that Abraham's father was an idol maker. So Abraham had probably grown up around all of these idols and ways of expressing devotion to God. Here's what I'd like to suggest to you today. God used the only language for devotion that Abraham understood. God used the only language for devotion that Abraham understood. Coming from pagan neighbors, coming from all of these other rituals around him, God says, look, I know that when you look at religions around you and when you look at devotion around you, there is only one way. There is the, high, the highest way of expressing devotion is to offer a child. And so God says, I want to know, Abraham, if your heart is fully devoted, but I'm going to use the only language for devotion that you understand. And then I'm going to show you something different. I think the good news, if you will, in the first two verses is that God is willing to work with where we are. God's, I mean, any of you got stories of when you first became a Christian? You're like, oh man, did I do some crazy things? Anybody burn CDs or burn records? You know, burn books, swore off all movies. You're like, I'm just, let's just take the sledgehammer to the VCR. We don't want that devil box in our house. And, and there might be some truth to that. God meets us where we are. Sometimes we have these. This is the only way I know how to show extreme devotion. Others of you, you're like, you, when you first became a Christian, you cut off all friendships with anyone who was not a Christian, right? And you're like, look, man, I'm just being radical. And, and as time went on, you realize, you know what, I've I got to love my neighbors. I've got to figure out how to love. And you, you, you came around a little bit. But in the early going, there is a way to express devotion. And aren't you glad that God met you where you are? Aren't you glad that God doesn't look at that and be like, you stupid, foolish Christian? 
Aren't you glad that God's like, well, you were trying to show me some sense of devotion. Okay, so God meets us where we are, but the story keeps going. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw. If you would, if you've got the ability to underline or circle or highlight, that word saw. Circle that. Saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. By the way, the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. And come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. Picture this. Isaac is carrying the wood, but Abraham is carrying the deadly stuff. The fire and the knife. Just as any good dad would. Be like, you can carry the wood, but I don't want you to accidentally get hurt. I'll hold the knife. And they both went together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, son. First he said, here I am to the Lord, now he says, here I am to his son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide, circle that word, provide, for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. Now let me make a comment on this. God is meeting Abraham where he is, using the only language for devotion that he understands. And Abraham exhibits what Paul will later call an obedience from faith. Romans 1 verse 5 and Romans 16 verse 26. The book of Romans is bookended with this phrase. It's actually the key to understanding the book of Romans is that there is a kind of obedience that comes from faith. In other words, God's wanting to see, Abraham, I know you have faith, But do you have the kind of obedience that comes from faith? Later on, Paul will say, this is the kind of faith that Abraham had was the faith in a God who even raises the dead. But without Paul in the picture, the Genesis storyteller knows enough to at least tell us that Abraham had faith in a God who would provide. Something is changing in his understanding of God. Verse 9, And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar. This phrase, bound him there, is used only this time so that it has, it has been called, this story in rabbinic tradition has been called the binding of Isaac. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. You can feel the movie getting slower here. Time is slowing down. This scene is taking a long time to unfold. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The third time Abraham answers, here I am. People keep calling me. What's going on? And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. That word again, looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, Yahweh Yireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Here's what I'd like to say to us, church. This is not a story about sacrifice. This is a story about sight. This is a story about sight. 
So often this passage is preached as a way of saying, are you willing to give up this? this, this? Listen, there's something true about that. There is an obedience from faith that God wants to produce in our lives. But I suggest to you this text is not for, in the first place about sacrifice. It's about sight. Why do I say that? Because this Hebrew word for see shows up over and over again in the story. This, this Hebrew word is raya. It means to see or will see. And there's different forms of it. In Genesis 16, Hagar says, I have seen him who looks after me. See, Hebrew is a very picture language. It's an idiomatic language. So it's going to use phrases as metaphors. So when it says, you see me, it means you're looking out for me. We do this in English too, right? You're looking after me, looking out for me. You see me. You will see me through. Genesis 21, God opened Hagar's eyes and she saw a well of water. Genesis 22, whenever you see the word in your English Bible that says provide, it's literally the Hebrew phrase, God will see. God will look after me. God will look out for me. And so when Abraham names it, names that place, the Lord will provide because on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. He's saying, you know what? You know what? He is the Lord who sees and will see me through. He's the God who sees. So is this a test? Yes. But I rather think it's like an eye exam. Where Abraham first starts out and God says, okay, what are the letters? How about this lens? And he goes, uh, sacrifice, um, devotion, obedience. And God's like, keep looking. Let's put another one over. Put another. Okay, Abraham, how's that? Like, ah, I see that you are the God who sees me. Yes, this is a test, but it's kind of like an eye exam. In the beginning of this story, Abraham saw God as the one who required the sacrifice. But by the end of the story, he sees God as the one who provides the sacrifice. I'll leave that up there and let's talk about this for a minute. At the beginning of the story, all he can see is, okay, it's the God who requires the sacrifice. I think I see a letter E, A, C, D. God's like, keep looking. Keep looking. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw a ram caught in the thicket. And he says, now I see you're not just the God who requires sacrifice. You're the God who provides it. You're the God who provides it. You're the God who ran ahead of me to prevent me from thinking I could save the moment. You're the God who provides the sacrifice. It reminds me of our gospel reading this morning. If you're kind of listening to it, you're probably thinking, what in the world is a story about Jesus walking on water looking like a ghost? What does that have to do with Abraham and Isaac? I think the followers of Jesus has, have always struggled to see him clearly. I think the followers of Jesus have always struggled to see him clearly. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. I think the story of growing in Christ is a story of saying, well, you know, when I first became a Christian, I don't know, I was kind of scared about hell and all of this stuff and an angry God, and I saw him like a ghost and it made me terrified. But the longer I've been walking with Jesus, I've heard his voice say, It is I, do not be afraid. The longer you walk with Jesus, my prayer for you, is that he looks less like a specter 
and more like a savior. That he looks less like a ghost and more like the one who says, do not be afraid. It is I. I haven't come to kill your joy. In fact, Jesus will say, I have come that your joy might be full. I'm not the God who requires the sacrifice and leaves you on your own to work it out. I'm the God who provides it. Mount Moriah is named the mount that the Lord sees. And it's unclear in Hebrew just the way the language works. It's unclear if it is it that the Lord sees or that the Lord will be seen. I mean, ha, ha, it all depends on how we read these things. And, and biblical Hebrew, just, just, just so you know, is missing vowels. Biblical Hebrew is a string of consonants that when it's spoken and heard, people knew what it meant. But that's why there's some of this. Is it that he sees or will see or will be seen? What if it's both? What if it's the place where we see the God who sees us? What if it's the place where our eyes are opened because His eyes have always been on you? What if it's the place where God says, I want you to see, look at me, look at me. I've always been looking at you. Every parent knows this moment when a child is distraught, And the thing to do is never to meet them in the intensity of the moment. That always turns them away. But if we are somehow able to bend down close. I have so many moments of this with our children. In the moment of their uh, being upset about something, is to come low, bend down to them, and say, Hey, hey Jane, hey Jonas, hey look at me, hey look at me, I see you. And I think of these moments in our walk with God where we're like, God, I don't, you don't understand. My life is a mess and I can't believe this is happening. Don't you even get it? I mean, I don't even want to... And God's saying, shh, 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 Hey, hey, look at me. I see you. I see you. Moriah was in the vicinity of what would later be called Calvary. And on that mount, the Lord did provide... On that day, another son walked up the hill carrying wood. This time wood nailed together in the shape of a cross. Only this son was not silent like Isaac. This son was willing. This son said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And this son walked up the hill. This son was the ram that the Lord provided. This son was the one that God revealed his love. This death would be the death that Paul would say, but God demonstrated his love through this. While we were yet sinners, while we were intent on treating God like our enemy, God kept trying to call us back to himself. Call us back to himself. I think the closer you look at Jesus, the more you see what God is like. If there's any question about it, this this is why we we say when Christians read the Bible, we don't just cherry pick a verse out of Exodus and Leviticus and Joshua. No, no, no. We read the Bible as a picture coming into focus. C.S. Lewis described it this way. He said in the Old Testament, we're seeing through the glass but kind of out of focus. And in Jesus, the picture of God snaps into view. 
snaps into focus. And all of a sudden, this is why they said in John's Gospel, and we beheld the glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. We saw it. There he is. Not a ghost, but the God who saves. Friends, I don't know what has been offered to you in the name of Christ. I don't know what gospel has been preached to you, what neighbors or friends or family members have told you. But religion sees a God who requires sacrifice. The gospel reveals a God who provides the sacrifice. Religion sees a God who requires sacrifice. All, all religions require us to do something to appease the angry God. No wonder people in our days say, I reject that. That's primitive. primitive. Christians ought to be the first ones to say, Amen. Amen. Because the death of Christ was not about appeasing a wrathful pagan God. That is a pagan myth. The story of Calvary is the story of God doing what He's always done. Bending down, coming near, providing the sacrifice, and saying, look at me. I'm looking at you. See me as I see you. Religion sees a God who requires sacrifice, but the gospel reveals a God who provides the sacrifice. I wonder how this changes everything for you. I wonder how this might change the way you even think about church. So I got, I got to come to church because, you know, it's sort of what we're supposed to do. God requires it. That's one way of thinking of it. Imagine thinking about parenting through that lens. You better do this because I said so. I'm the boss. You're not. But what if the gospel actually changed everything? What if the gospel actually changed the way you thought about church, about service, about marriage, about parenting, about love, about friendships? What if you believe that God has already provided the sacrifice and that anything that we do is done in the context of, in the, 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 just immersed in the already given sacrifice of Christ? Does that mean we don't love one another sacrificially? Of course not. It means that you are free to love one another sacrificially because you're not actually trying to appease God. It means when you serve and when you bring a, a dish to someone or when you visit someone who's sick in the hospital, when you go and, uh, uh, and bring a, a food to someone who's just had a baby, when you do all of these things, you're not doing it because someone has required it. You're doing it because God has lavished His love on you. And you're like, I, there's kind of so much to go around. There's kind of a lot to go around. The God who provides, provides more than enough. So, yeah, I want to serve. Yes, I want to sacrifice. Why? Because my sacrifice is not being driven by this sense of God requires it and moral obligation. In, in, instead, it is motivated by grateful love. Grateful love. Do you know, two people can do the exact same behaviors from very different motivations. Two people could serve in the nursery at church. Two people could 
work hard for a friend. Two people, could, you, you, could do all, you could both do the same things. And one could be doing it because, well, I'm just trying to be a good Christian. And the other could do it because they say, you know what? The gospel changed everything. The gospel changed everything. God was long-suffering with me. God provided a sacrifice when I could never please Him on my own. God came down when I thought that I had to go up to Him. God came near. So we're patient with our children. So we're long-suffering with our friends who hurt us. So we're merciful with our family members and our coworkers. We're able to reproduce sacrificial love because God's sacrificial love has changed us. Paul says in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you know the reason we do communion every Sunday? It's so no matter what blunders you hear out of the pulpit from me or anyone else, we always come back to the very heart of the gospel. The God who did not spare His own Son. I don't want you ever to leave on a Sunday morning thinking, okay, I've got to do better because God is waiting. I've got to sacrifice. Feeling guilty. You're like, I don't know, there's so much joy in my life. Is that bad? Is that bad? <laughs> but all of a sudden saying, it's the God who's given us all things. Thank you, God. And it's thanksgiving, it's gratefulness that all of a sudden fuels our own sacrificial love for others. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's that word again. Genesis 22, the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Romans 12, Paul says, you want to know how to worship as followers of Jesus? Offer up your whole life. Oh, no. Are we back to that Abraham and Isaac thing? No, no, no. Paul's like, no, no, no. No, sorry, sorry. Before you get... In view of God's mercy, offer your lives as a living sacrifice. That means every Sunday we come back to the cross, we come back to the table, and it recalibrates us. It realigns us. You see, I think old habits die hard, and so there's some of us like, oh, I just... I'm sliding over into religious duty again. And, and every time we come on a Sunday, we're like, no, 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 no. The grateful love. The generous love of God produces in us a grateful love towards others. And so as we behold His sacrifice, we say, okay, in view of God's mercy, remember what I said, Genesis 22 is not about sacrifice, it's about sight. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy. In view of it. Maybe the word for us this morning, church, lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look. Look. On those Monday mornings when you're frustrated and stressed and anxious and, and you can't summon up sacrificial duty, when the Protestant work ethic is not enough to make you get out of bed, <laughs> when good old hard work can't keep you moving, lift up your eyes and look up. Look up. And in view of God's mercy, say, God, here's my life again. Here I am again. I want to love sacrificially. 
I want to serve, I want to give, not because I have to, but because I've been changed by your generous love to me. Amen?